Matthew chapter 5, I want to preach on the topic of turn the other cheek. This is a pretty popular couple of verses that we're going to be looking at tonight. Perhaps outside of Matthew chapter 7 where it says, judge not that you be not judged. This verse is, uh, at least verse 38, is is a, a verse that the world likes to use. They like to use, judge not that you be not judged. They love to use that without even knowing what it means when they say, don't judge me, you can't judge me, so on and so forth. But in verse 38 of Matthew 5, it says, you have heard that it's been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So the world has borrowed that phrase over and over and over to justify retaliation, to justify revenge, <clears throat> and things like that. So we're going to look at verse 38 and verse 39 tonight, and we're going to see what God thinks about these verses. I I want to read together just those two verses, and then we'll get into it. You have heard that it's been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other side. Also, anybody who thinks about these verses, especially if you're a critical thinker, you're going to come away with some very troubling questions. Such as, does this mean if I see some crime being committed, I do nothing to stop it? Or if a robber breaks into my house at night, I don't resist him. It says resist not evil. But I turn the other cheek and I tell him where my most valuable possessions are inside the house. Do we do away with the police force? Is Is that an application of that? Do we disband the army? Think about it. If the blacks of America were following this verse, would they not still be riding in the back of the bus? What are we to make of this? Is this even consistent with the actions of Jesus? Talking about the Lord Jesus that likened himself to the door of a sheepfold. The idea was was that of a shepherd positioning himself to guard his sheep from any oncoming danger or harm. That doesn't sound like turning the other cheek. Talking about Jesus that grabbed a cord of whips and drove out of the temple those he said were turning the house of prayer into a den of thieves. If you've read that account in the Gospels, that doesn't sound like turning the other cheek. So in order to begin to understand this, we need to first start in context. We need to put it into the flow of the entire sermon. I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. In this sermon, Jesus has one dominant idea, many, many applications. One dominant idea that he's trying to get across to his disciples and then to us today, and that idea is found in chapter 5 and verse 20. Look at it. This is the central idea of this entire sermon. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Here's the central idea of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, that's the scribes and Pharisees, or else we will have no part in the kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying this through the Sermon on the Mount. He's calling his disciples, that's you and that's me, that's his original 12. 
He's calling his disciples, he's calling us to a higher standard. And he's expecting our lives, our responses, our attitudes, our behavior to rise above that of the outwardly religious but inwardly wicked scribes and Pharisees. He's saying, disciples, the scribes and Pharisees of your day, the religious leaders of your day that are mainly concerned about the outward appearance, they have their standard for living and they want to push it on everybody else. But I'm going to preach a sermon to call you to an even higher standard. And to illustrate this dominant truth, he's going to give five examples. So five times he's going to say, here's the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. But I say unto you, here's what God expects. Five times he's going to point us to what the religious leaders teach. And he's going to compare that to what God is calling us to. And he starts in verse 21 and 22 of chapter 5. Look at it. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now look up here. Do you get what Jesus is doing? The religious leaders have taught that murder is physically killing a person. Jesus says, if you think in your heart, I wish they were dead. I can't stand them. I hate them. Then Jesus said, you are already a murderer in your heart. Do you see how God raises the standard? Okay, he has another example in verse 27. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's, that's what they said, that's what the scribes and Pharisees said. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. As long as you abstain from the physical sexual act with somebody that is not your wife, you are not an adulterer. That is what the religious leaders of the day taught. Jesus says that if you think about or fantasize about a woman inappropriately in your heart, you're an adulterer. He gives another example in verse 33. Again, you have heard it that hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. Here was the religious leaders of their day. Here was their standard. Do not make a sworn oath and break it. Keep your word. Pretty good standard. Jesus raises the standard and says, here's what's important to God, that you have such a credible character, that your word is so reliable that what you don't even have to swear. People are going to know that you have such a reliable character. You don't have to overcompensate with promises. The fourth example is the one we're looking at tonight in 38 and 39. But then he gives a fifth example in verse 43 and 44. Look at your Bible. You've heard it been said that shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. The religious leader says you, you, you need to love your neighbor, yes. But you have permission to hate your enemies. Jesus said, nope. Here's God's standard for his disciples. Love your neighbor and equally love your enemy. So our response, look up here, our response, our attitudes, our righteousness must be greater than the religious leaders when it comes to murder and anger, adultery and lust, keeping our word and loving our enemies. And those things, Jesus is saying, the standard is higher. But he does the same thing in verse 38 and 39. So, so now we're looking at the flow of the passage. Verse 38 and 39 is one of those examples. One of those illustrations he's using 
for the dominant idea of his message. And he's calling us specifically, listen church, to a, to a, a response, a higher standard in our response towards someone that has personally and purposefully wronged us. He's saying this, the religious leaders will tell you that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is the right response. If they gouge an eye, you gouge one of their eyes. If they hit you in the tooth, you hit them back in the tooth. But I expect my disciples to resist not evil. But, but, but when hit on one cheek, to turn the other cheek. In summary, here's what he's saying. Here's God's standards in our one-on-one relationships. Refuse retaliation. Do not seek revenge. Turn the other cheek. Now the first thing we need to do to really understand this principle is we need to go ahead and acknowledge that at least what the religious leaders expected was in the Bible. It was scriptural. God said it. God came up with it. God wrote it. He put that law in the place. So then we have to ask this question. Where did the religious leaders get it wrong? If God said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, somehow the religious leaders, as they always did, have twisted the scripture have manipulated the scripture. And so, in what way did they do that? Well, we got to go back to Leviticus chapter 24 in order to see the reasons and the intent that God had for putting this law into place in the first place. So go to Leviticus 24, or it'll be on the screen if if you don't want to turn in your Bible. I'm going to turn in my Bible because my Bible needs broken in. This new Bible. Leviticus 24, it'd be good for you to turn there, by the way. I hear two people turning there unless you're all using iPads. The screen is for those that don't bring their Bible to church. Leviticus 24, verse number 19. And if a man cause a blemish in his neighbor, as he hath done, so shall it be done to him. Breach for breach. That means break for break. Fracture for fracture. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done to him again. And he that killeth a beast, he shall restore it. And he that killeth a man, he shall be put to death. Now let me explain this. When God gave this law, this is the original place he gave the law, he was setting some boundaries for what was in that time a very savage world where revenge was running rampant. He was giving what they call the law of limitation. He was preventing excessive punishment he was setting up a law that would safeguard a very barbaric people from over retaliating so he was saying this you may not punish a person in a more severe way than he or she deserves the ancient world this is good for you to know operated on the same system that two sibling brothers operate when they're sharing the back seat of a vehicle one brother has half of the seat and the other brother has the other half of the seat and as every good younger brother will do he will seek to antagonize the older brother and so he puts his hand on the older brother's side of the seat and the older brother retaliates slaps his hand that makes the little brother upset he retaliates hits him in the arm that makes the older brother upset he retaliates hits the little brother in the back of the head 
And then the dad pulls over the car and does his thing. The ancient world operated just like that. It wasn't an eye for an eye. If they got slapped on the hand, they punched him in the arm. If they got punched in the arm, they hit the person in the head. If somebody stole their, their cow, they burned the house down of the person that stole their cow. If somebody upset their little Johnny, well, they probably went and killed the other little Johnny. This was a barbaric world. This, this, this was savage. You see it in Genesis 4, you don't have to turn there, but a man by the name of uh, Lamech bragged about killing a man for wounding him. Also in Genesis 4, he bragged about killing a boy for striking him. This kind of world that they lived in, over-retaliation. Thus, God came and told his people that they weren't allowed to punish another person beyond what they did wrong. Does that make sense? Give me some feedback. So we see, first of all, that God gave this law for the purpose of fairness and justice. But there's another reason he gave this law, and it's found in Deuteronomy. Would you turn there, please? Deuteronomy chapter 19, a couple books over. Deuteronomy chapter 19. I want you to look at verse 16. Because this adds another element to give us God's intent for, for, for putting up this law or establishing this law eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Verse 16. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges, judges which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eyes shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. What's the difference here in Deuteronomy as compared to Leviticus? Did you notice in verse 17 or 18 that the law was to be carried out by judges? See that? That meant that this law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, it was supposed to be carried out by someone that had no emotional connection to the situation. One that was unbiased. The religious leaders now, watch, were twisting this teaching and saying that God intended for us to take this law into our own hands and into our one-on-one -on -one relationship. So, they would say, if you're wronged personally and purposefully by your neighbor, then they taught that you deal with it personally and you, re you seek revenge to the same degree that you were hurt. In other words, they taught this, stand up for your rights. Don't let anybody mow you down, talk you down, or shut you down. Let them know they can't get away with hurting you. But Jesus says that is very far from God's heart. Jesus said real disciples do not carry that attitude into their personal lives, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You hit me, I'll hit you back. Talk about my kids, I'll talk about your kids. You don't invite me to your birthday party, you're not getting invited to my birthday party. You don't recognize me when I sing a song, I'm not going to recognize you when you sing a song. You with me? God says, no, 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 that's, that's not my heart. Because, I want you to go back to Matthew 5 if you're not there. Because you go to the second part of the verse, or, or rather verse 39 of chapter 5, and it begins this way, but I say unto you. 
In other words, now, let me introduce you to what God's heart is for his disciples. I'm going to raise this. I'm going to raise the standard. He says, don't resist evil. Resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, what does he mean by that exactly? What is Jesus telling us to do? Surely, there wasn't a big problem in that day with just going up to somebody random and slapping them in the face. So he has to be using that as more of a metaphor, an analogy. Now I'm sure people got hit or slapped in the face. But what is he doing with that phrase particularly? Well, it's, it's really a deeper meaning than just if someone slaps you in the, whoa, slaps you in the face, turn the, I'm not used to wearing this sucker, turn the other to the other cheek. Something deeper there. So, so let me illustrate. Bradley, come up here for a second. Such a good looking guy, brother. Come right up here. What side would like to see this? This side or this side? Whichever one makes them. No, I'm just kidding. Here we go. All right. Please put your hands to the side or preferably in your pockets. Very good. You do not need to be hitting me back. Most men in that day as in our day were right-handed. Okay? If you noticed in the verse, Jesus referred to being hit on the what cheek? Right cheek. And so if I'm going to hit Bradley in the right cheek, this is not his right cheek. This is his right cheek. Then how am I going to do that? I'm going to have to backhand him. I'm going to have, just take a deep breath, close your eyes. It's just like Kayla slaps you every, you know, same, same thing. Boom, I'm going to go just like this. Just, boom, just like this. Now what's the intent of that? I will tell you what it's not. To inflict the maximum amount of pain. If I wanted to inflict the maximum amount of pain, I'm, I'm getting a fist and I'm punching him in the nose. The intent is not to, 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 to deeply, deeply injure him by way of violence. The intent has everything to do with the contempt in my heart for him. Has, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to insult him. It would be like we do today, we spit on somebody. You know your spit's not going to knock him down and cause him to tap out, right? If you get spat upon, and I think many of our police officers probably have gotten spat upon. If you get spat upon, then then that's because they want to insult you. In that day, if you got backhanded, it's because it was their way of saying very loud and clear, that's what I think of you. You can be seated. And, And so it's, It's very, very important that you understand it had nothing to do with just mindless violence. Okay, And Jesus is using a physical slap, but in our lives, it's not going to be a physical slap. When's the last time somebody came up to you and backhanded you in the face? All right? It doesn't happen. Just an illustration. Jesus is teaching us how to respond when it feels like somebody slapped us in the face. He's teaching us how to respond when somebody intentionally does something to us with a spirit of contempt and with an intent to insult us, to do something even in front of other people that says loud and clear, that's what I think of you. So, when that kind of evil happens towards you, I got good news. Jesus says this, don't resist it. Don't resist it. That's what he says. It's important to understand what Jesus is not saying here. 
he's not talking about some mindless random act of violence. Follow me, please. He's not talking about when someone walks into Walmart with an automatic rifle and starts shooting innocent people. And you're in there and you have a gun on you for you just to put your hands up and say, shoot me. Nope. If you have a gun, you probably should shoot back. He's not talking about when you see a husband beating on his wife down the street. You don't just drive by and turn the other cheek. You call the police. Are you, uh, surely you're in favor of that. Okay. He's not talking about the bully who comes to who is ever in the front of the line, pushes into the side, and takes their spot in line. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about the bully who comes to you. Because he knows you personally and doesn't like you. And even though you're two-thirds of the way back in the line, he still comes and pushes you out of the way. Because it's not about getting to the front of the line. It's about getting in front of you. Here's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about that older guy at work who just always seems to be on your case. Always giving you a bad time. Always finding fault with what you're doing. Willing to help other employees with their work. Willing to stay late and cover for others. But when you ask him for help, he refuses. When you say, will you stay late for me? He absolutely wants nothing to do with it. And you think this. Why are you on my case? You don't do that to anybody else at work. Why me? He's talking about a relative, a a member of your family who's envious of you and jealous of you and for some reason doesn't get you and is always picking the smallest thing you do to, to make you look bad in front of other people and you think to yourself, what have I done to you? You don't do that to my brother. You don't do that to Aunt Martha. You don't even do that to my husband or my, you treat others in the family great. What's the matter with me? Jesus is talking about the person you go to church with, you worship with, you, you, you serve with. Your kids are the same age, but when their kid is having a birthday party, everybody gets invited but your kid. When their family has a 4th of July cookout, you're the only one in the, in the Bible class that doesn't get an invitation. It's obviously intentional, and it's not like other people in the church don't like you, it's just them. You get invited to other people's birthday parties, you invite them to yours. But for some reason, it's just very clear that mom in the church doesn't appreciate you. Jesus is saying, when you perceive that the evil is narrowly focused on you, when the actions of another are purposely jabbing and and intentionally trying to get at you, here's what you do. Don't resist it. You turn the other cheek, which means this. You have to absorb it. And even leave yourself open to experiencing it again. And my question, and I know some of your minds are exploding with this question, why? What good will that do? Won't it just leave us open to continually get hurt? What is accomplished by being a doormat and turning the other cheek? May I make myself clear one more time, we're not talking about violence. We're not talking about uh, acts of abuse, physical, sexual, verbal, emotional. Are are you with me there? You know, I'm I'm not trying to take this to the other ditch. There's a ditch on both sides of the road. To answer the question why, you've got to go to Romans 12. Go to Romans 12.
And look at verse 17. Let's read together. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. Don't seek revenge. Not an eye for an eye, not a tooth for a tooth. But rather give place under wrath. Turn the other cheek. Resist, resist not the evil. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. Why? Why all this? Why turn the other cheek? Here it is. For, for, or because. In so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Some just saw that and said, oh, I get it. I get it. If you really want to get even with somebody, you be nice to them. You kill them with kindness, that'll drive them crazy. That's not exactly what Paul had in mind. I don't mind the term kill them with kindness. I just don't think our motive's always great when we're killing them with kindness. Because in a lot of ways, we're killing them. It's our subtle way of getting revenge. Somebody say amen. The phrase, thou shalt heat coals of fire on his head, comes from Proverbs 25, verse 22. Paul knew the Old Testament. He quoted it often in his writings. The phrase actually started in Egypt as a proverb, made its way to Palestine and into the book of Proverbs. Back in Egypt, it referred to a time, watch here, when, when somebody in the community discovered that they had been wrong in regards to something or towards somebody. So, so maybe somebody made a comment in Egypt, about somebody else in the town. And the next day, the person that made the comment found out that they were wrong in making that comment. They jumped to conclusions. They made a rash judgment that just wasn't right. Or let's say somebody in a small town in Egypt made somebody, had been to a council meeting and advocated for something in that meeting and later realized they were completely off base. They were wrong. Well, in a society where there was no possible way to indicate that you realized you were wrong... And, and you want to admit that and accept responsibility for it. I mean, you couldn't go on Twitter and make an announcement. You couldn't, you, you, you couldn't make things right with a click of a button, nor could you, could you, could you uh, uh, insert an apology um, or issue an explanation in the local newspaper. So when you realize that something you did in a situation or towards another individual was wrong, they came up with this ritual. The person who was wrong would go get a flat pan of some sort and put hot coals on that pan. They would then put a towel on their head so as not to burn their skull. And they would put that flat pan of hot coals upon their head and they would walk into the public square where everybody could see them. They didn't even have to utter a syllable. They didn't have to say a word because the symbolism and the message they sent with having burning coals on their head was loud and clear, and it was this, I'm wrong. I'm cleansing my mind. I'm purifying my heart. I'm making this right with my fellow man and my family and my community that I was out of line. I jumped to conclusions. I was in the flesh. I've been wrong. I'm, I'm really glad they don't have that ritual today. I, that'd be rough. You think an apology's hard. 
Try putting a pan of, of hot coals on your head and going out to Main Street. And it means, you don't have to say a word, everybody knows, oh, they're wrong. That's what it meant in this day. And so watch here, here's what Paul is saying. When somebody intentionally jabs at you or does something to hurt you or insult you or make you look bad, you ought to refuse retaliation. Rather, you ought to absorb it, take it, don't resist it, and turn the other cheek, even making yourself susceptible to another insult, another jab, another offense. And here's why. Because when you do, you will heat coals of fire on that person's head, meaning your lack of response, your refusal to seek revenge, your turning of the cheek and absorbing whatever it is they've done to you, by doing that, you will lead someone to see that they have been wrong and admit that they've been wrong. They might not go in the public square with hot coals on their head. But by your Christ-like response, by your seemingly passive silence, by absorbing what hurts you, you are giving God space through which to fulfill a promise. Vengeance is mine. You're not doing that so God gets back at them. You're doing that so the Holy Spirit uses your example and your response to create a space in their heart of humility and admittance to their wrongdoing. And some of you are thinking, I've tried that. It doesn't work. No, I've done exactly what he told me to do, and it doesn't work. May I say that your refusal to seek revenge isn't a guarantee that their heart will change. You understand God did a lot of things to people and even God himself. Even some of the things God did to people didn't change their heart. You read the plagues lately? You get that, right? You read the book of Judges? God would punish a generation of people? Surely it will change the next generation's heart and hope they did the same thing. So you're doing right doesn't mean that the person that wronged you is going to start doing right. Here's what it means, that you're going to give them the best chance to do right. You're going to create the space necessary for God to do in their heart what your aggressive, vindictive response could never accomplish. How many believe God can do a better job at making somebody right that hurt you than you can do? Think about who's writing this. Who's writing Romans 12? The Apostle Paul. After thinking about this, this principle actually played out in his life personally. I'm, I'm talking about something somebody did in response to his wrongdoing, heaped coals of fire on his head, and actually got him one step closer to accepting Jesus Christ. You know before Paul was known as Paul, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. Follow me here. He hated Christians. In fact, he was on his way to persecute Christians in the capital of Syria, which is Damascus, when he got saved. So he was on the road to Damascus. He was going to go there, and he was going to bring uh, 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 Christians that had fled from Jerusalem for safety. He's going to bring them back to Jerusalem to put them to death. And on the way there, a light from heaven shined down upon him, knocked him off his horse, and literally God said to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And then God made this statement. Watch here. 
it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Another word for pricks is goads. A goad or a prick was a long, sharp stick pointed at one end. It was what a farmer would use to to hurry up his oxen. It's what he would... It's what he would use if they started going crooked or they started slowing down or they started losing focus. He would prick them and then they would go and then they would slow down again out of fatigue or stubbornness and he would goad them again and they would go. And eventually that ox would figure out, I'm going to start kicking against this thing. And the farmer knew when the ox was about to kick because he would raise his leg up just like that. And the moment the ox would raise up his leg, I'm going to show this farmer, he would stick a goad right there in his back end. That's where we get the phrase, it's hard to kick against the pricks. You can try all you want, but the farmer has the thing with the pointy edge. And God is saying, to, watch, I'm going somewhere. God is saying to Saul at that time, it's hard kicking against my pricks, isn't it? Oh, you tried to put up your leg a number of times. You can't do it any longer. What was one of those goads that God used along the way in Saul's life to bring him to Jesus? It happened, I think, I got it written down. Acts 12, don't turn there. But it happened in Acts 12. What happened in Acts 12, do you remember? Stephen. Stephen got stoned. Who was at that scene? Saul, read it. In Acts 12, Saul was mentioned as a young man then. Maybe a 16-year-old boy. A Pharisee to be. Memorizing the law ready to be one of them Christian persecutors, but the best thing he could do, the most valuable thing he could do at his age was hold the garments of the one being persecuted. And so they stripped Stephen of his garments, who was a godly, don't you know he was a godly man, a faith-filled man, a lover of Jesus Christ and the church. They stripped him of his garments, they took the biggest stones they could find and started slamming them on his skull, slamming them in his face, slamming them on his gut, slamming them on his back and over in the corner is a young man named Saul of Tarsus that is holding Stephen's garments and God uses Stephen's response his response of turning the other cheek as a prick or a goad to heap coals of fire on Paul's head Because Paul heard something, Saul then heard Stephen say something that had to have burned fire on his head. I'll tell you what he didn't hear. He didn't hear Stephen say, y'all are going to burn and rot away in hell for doing this to a man of God like me. Mm -mm. You know what he heard Stephen say? Watch, I'll read it. Father, do not lay this sin to their charge. Wow. What was going through little Saul's mind when he heard Stephen being stoned, but yet turning the other cheek, resisting not the evil, not cursing back, not throwing a stone back, not even trying to flee, but rather say, Father, forgive them. I guarantee you it heaped coals of fire on his young head. So that when he got years later down the road to Damascus, God said to him, you can't kick against the pricks any longer. 
which tells me that your Christ-like response might be one of the links in a really long chain of connecting somebody to Jesus Christ. Mm. The coworker that's always on your case. Nobody else is on your case. They're jealous, envious. What? I don't know what it could be. They just don't like you. You turning that cheek could be the link in a long chain. Well, I never see it happen. Well, Stephen had no idea that Saul was going to be Paul. He didn't get to see that with his own eyes. It was years later he was in heaven. And you turning the other cheek might not make an immediate difference. But sometime down the road, it might be a goad. It might be a prick that God uses to bring them to Christ. Or if they're already saved, to bring them back to Christ. Or or if they already are close to Christ, to bring them into better relational habits. To make them a more considerate person. A less selfish person. A less abusive person. A less lazy person. Don't underestimate the power of turning the other cheek. And Paul isn't the only example of this, is he? I'm thinking of Jesus. While hanging on a cross and being crucified for crimes he didn't commit, while being attacked and beaten and mocked, he could have retaliated in a way most powerful. He could have exacted revenge on his accusers in a way the world has never known. But what does the Bible say he did? Look at it. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. He says, here's how you turn the other cheek, that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, Neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, watch, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. I know it feels weak to remain silent. It feels so passive to absorb an insult that is directed right at you. It feels so unnatural to just let something go that is so wrong. But consider Jesus. If anybody had the right to retaliate, it was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But he never once sinned, even though he was put to death in a way that the criminals of the day, the worst criminals of the day were put to death by way of crucifixion. And in his response... You couldn't read the Gospels. He heaped coals of fires on the head of Pilate. Because Pilate came to the conclusion, I'm washing my hands clean to this innocent man. You remember Pilate started asking these questions and Jesus was just silent? Turning the other cheek, left and right? Wasn't just once. And Pilate came to the conclusion, y'all do it with him what you want. I'm washing my hands clean. Oh, and don't forget the thief on the cross. Who when Jesus was spat upon and his own disciples and mother had to watch. And when Jesus was mocked and when Jesus was beaten with a whip, made fun of. Don't forget that there were two thieves next to him. 
Don't forget that they got to spectate the whole event. And they never once saw Jesus retaliate. They never once saw Jesus get up in arms. They never once saw Jesus go to Facebook. They never once saw Jesus text his friends and tell them how bad he's being treated. Never once saw Jesus go on the town and talk about the preacher. Nope. Jesus hung there. And bled, the Bible says, like a lamb. You understand he's a lion. He's not a lamb. But he made himself a lamb. And he heat coals of fire on the head of at least one of them thieves. And he said, I want what you got. I believe in you. I'm wrong. And because of his choice of faith, Jesus told the thief, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So those are just a couple examples of the way that maybe your response can heap coals of fire on somebody's head. The idea is not so you can get back with them. The idea is so you could reconnect them with the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea is so you can help them fall in love with Jesus again. When you fall in love with Jesus again, you don't treat people bad. So I don't know who's targeting you. I don't know who's whose focus is narrowly on you at work, in your family, at church. I don't know. I don't know. Here's what I do know. Jesus tells us how to deal with it. Don't resist it. Turn the other cheek. And in doing so, you will show them perhaps the most accurate picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's hard, isn't it? And that's difficult, isn't it? See, the room wasn't quiet and tense as we're building a case. The room is quiet and tense as the scripture has made such a case that we have no excuse. That's why it got quiet, because we can't argue against this. We're relaxed because we're waiting for you to prove that this is true. And then when the scripture so accurately proves how high God's standard is for his disciples in their interpersonal relationships, that's when we are cut sharp with the sword of the word. So, so whatever relationship is struggling and you might be a victim of a backhand. No, you're not getting slapped, you just feel like it. Turn the other cheek. And let God deal with it. And trust him to heat coals of fire on their head. And pray that he will use your response to reconnect them and their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ.